Hey, I'm sex, love, and relationship therapist, Dr. Laura Berman. And for the past 30 years, I've been helping people just like you learn to love and be loved better. Here on the Language of Love Conversations, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential and revolutionary experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, and celebrities about love, sex, and relationships from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. And that way, my goal is to awaken your mind, body, and soul. It's time to become fluent in the language of love. Glodine Champion is a coach, educator, speaker, and storyteller. And she says, until we're able to love ourselves, truly, madly, deeply love ourselves, we can't really love anyone else. And that's why we're here, isn't it? To love and look out for one another. I met Glodine a while back when I was invited to join an organization of which she's a member called the Association for Transformational Leaders. And I was blown away not only by her talk she spoke at the event, but by the way in which she literally glows, Glodine, and the way in which she spreads love around the room. We're going to talk not only about her new book, which is an amazing fictional work called Salmon Croquettes, but also how she's using love in the conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also her most recent TEDx talk about how moving to Monterey, California, actually saved her life and the secret suicidal journey that she was on that her move to Monterey changed. And we're so glad she's still here. I'm so excited to share Glodine Champion with you. So I have so much to talk to you about Glodine. I want to start with Salmon Croquettes, your fictional story. This is how you, you know, when you read the description on the back cover of the book, right? It says Zayla Lucille McKinney. I'm summarizing here, but Zayla, who's the main protagonist, is a little girl growing up in the circle in Watts, Los Angeles, and she's grappling with confusion around gender identity. She feels like she's a boy trapped in a girl's body. She's trying to figure out why all the other kids are calling her a bull dagger, which I guess was their term for derogatory term for a lesbian, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really talks about her transfer. It tells a story of transformation of a 12 year old tomboy to a young woman as this community around her is exploding and the Watts, it happens, the story takes place during the Watts riots. And it is really about acceptance, about personal evolution. And what really struck me, because you, at least for now, I do not think this is going to remain the case, but you self-published. And so I'm going to be honest because, you know me, I'm sort of <laughs> always <laughs> honest. Just so you guys know, Glodine and I met relatively recently when I was invited to join the, the Association of Transformational Leaders, of which she's been a member, and she was speaking there. And I was like everyone else. I was really drawn to you. And I reached out. We connected afterwards, and we had a little Zoom coffee date. And you were telling me about this book. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read this book not only for our interview, but because I really like Glodine and she seems really smart and I'm sure this book is good, but I wasn't like, I didn't have super high expectations. 
And truth be told, Sam, my producer will tell you this. I can be kind of a brat about writing, about books. I can be really critical of my own writing. And I'm always more critical of my own writing than other people's writings. But like, I often don't want, like a lot of the books that are published out there, I'm like, this wasn't that good. I mean, it's fine, but it's not that good. I got to tell you, you are a freaking beautiful writer. Thank you. Oh my gosh. So smart, but also really simple in a good way. Not like simple, not smart, but like (laughs) not a lot of flowery stuff like my writing teachers used to tell me my writing was too flowery or I went on too long about any particular point, you know, right? really simple and sharp, but very deeply said and really profound. And I know you're like super confident and you are very gracious about the way that you receive compliments, but I really want you to you're a really beautiful, beautiful writer. Like I could not put this down oh, and I was not expecting that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was really good. I mean, I, I was making all these notes, but a lot of it is about this. It's not autobiographical, um, no. but it's about this young girl and she's struggling with gender and her mother. One of the things that I thought was so beautiful is that You were able, you know, my whole thing in the work that I do, especially the stuff in entertainment or when I play in those spaces, is that I really want to do transfotainment, right? Where you are taking people on a journey and it's an amazing story that you're telling, but there are these secret transformative messages happening that you're really giving voice to. And I'm not that graceful at doing that, but you are. And there were all of these moments. And I, I just want to read a couple of little blurbs. And these are disparate little moments, but I think they give you a flavor of how well Claudine sort of spoke to this confusion and the rejection that this girl felt at the hands of her mom. You know, there was this moment where her mom is really uncomfortable with her gender expression and her not being willing to wear the pink frilly dresses. And she got in trouble because she was accused, you know, or caught kissing another girl. And her mom literally gave away all of her jeans and t-shirts. And she wanted so badly to fit in and to be acceptable in her mother's eyes. And that there was this whole scene, which made me like my husband was looking over me like, what is happening? I was laughing out loud <laughs> when I was reading the scene about this little girl who had been called a bull dyke, which, like we said, was basically being called a dyke or whatever. Yeah, she didn't even know what dagger. it meant. A bull dagger. Yeah. A bull dagger. That's what it was. Yeah. A bull dagger. And so she's trying. She's looking in the mirror at herself like, OK, I don't even know what a bull dagger is, but something about me is making everybody say that. And she decided it was her big wiry eyebrows. So she used a depilatory cream. She decided she was going to change her image. And she and it was so funny, the scene of her like try. And then she ends up taking off her entire eyebrows and her mother's really going to freak out now. Oh, my God. I was laughing so hard. But she says, I prayed almost daily for God to realize his terrible mistake and fix me. I needed my caterpillar self to bloom into a beautiful monarch. One day I prayed, one day. There was just all of these beautiful moments. 
how was I supposed to know that being honest with mama was the wrong thing to do? There was just like all of these ways in which you give voice to what's going on in this little girl's mind, which, by the way, is going on in millions of little girls and little boys and little people's minds. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like in your writing process and even in writing the book, because it's a commentary on gender, it's a commentary on self-acceptance, it's a commentary on race. And I know you've done a lot of things around the brown bag test, which I want to talk about when we get into race, but you cover all of it. And I'm just wondering where this all started and came from. Okay, first, I have to say that the scene that you just talked about is actually autobiographical. (laughs) I shaved my eyebrows off when I was a kid. Why? My mother mother used to use that magic shave that I talk about in the book. Yeah. To shave her chin whiskers. Yeah. Which I now get that I'm in menopause. Like I get that. (laughs) But she left it in the bathroom. And so the only hair I had was only hair I had on my face were my eyebrows. So. I put it on my eyebrows. And the funny thing is my mom kept looking at me after I did it. And she kept saying, what did you do? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> nobody at school. No, nobody noticed. Really? That I didn't have did you have bangs? No, <laughs> my face was like, bro- just like, hello. And then uh, see. it was like a week later, my mother, I don't know how my mother always had her epiphanies about something that I did while she was talking to somebody on the phone. Yeah. I was in my room and I never forget this. I heard her say, girl, let me call you back. I just realized what that fool did. <laughs> she shaved <laughs> off her eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of scenes where this character <laughs> hears things, learns things from listening to her mom on the phone. On the phone. Yeah. Yeah. So that was autobiographical too. That part was like, but the story idea came to me when I was at Mills College. Mm -hmm. So I had worked like a corporate job, was in on the way up the corporate ladder and quit and went back to school. And I'm 36, everyone is 18 and I'm acting like an 18 year old and hanging out with all these, you know, kids, if you will. And there were a lot of girls that were, being their authentic self at school. But if I ever took them home, they went home dressed differently than they dressed at school. Hmm. And in the black community, homosexuality is like, it doesn't really exist. If somebody in your family is, is gay, they're going through a phase. They need to go to church. They need to pray. Yeah. But it couldn't possibly be that that's how you are inside. When my aunt read my book, Well, she didn't read the book. She asked me what it was about. And when I told her, she said, are you trying to tell me something? And I was like, well, if I was trying to tell you, I'd just tell you, no, I'm not. But I felt like because, and not just in the black community, but because that's my community, it was like, this is so stupid because these children come out of these women's bodies. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if I was gay, I don't think my mother would have behaved that way. I mean, she might've, no, I don't think my mother would have behaved my aunt, yes. My mother, no. Yeah. And so I thought, what if I created a story where people have to go through the experience of a child trying to figure herself out right, through her from eyes. the child's perspective, what she's dealing with? And I didn't want any excuse, if you will, to stop people from being able to connect. So I intentionally didn't make her poor. 
Yeah. Her father actually has, I mean, in the sequel, it'll be, you'll, she'll find out how much money her father actually has, but her father. He's a club is, owner. He's, he's doing he's a okay. Club owner. Yeah. And he was a singer and for a, a long DJ. time before she mm-hmm. came along. Not a DJ, but he was like, he was on the road. He used to do the Chitlin circuit. Oh, right. Um, there was another DJ. That wasn't. Yeah, yeah the DJ that was, that, that was. Uh, burn, baby, burn. Baby. Yes. I got to meet him. He did. Anyway, I'll tell you that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought. I want her to be from a two parent household, live in a home, not be in a struggle, not have been molested. I didn't want any excuse for people to say that's, that's why. why. She's gay. Yeah. And so I also in having gay friends, I also realize and I'm bisexual. Mm-hmm. And so I know how I felt growing up, but I didn't I didn't see women with women. So I figured, well, I like boys and I like girls. I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't have anybody to talk to about it, but I also didn't think anything was wrong with it because I liked boys. So I could go with boys. Yeah. But for my friends that were gay and identified as gay outside of the home, I recognized that when they were at home, the same sex parent was the one that made their lives a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And so her mother had to be unlikable. Yeah. Because I wanted parents to, I wanted parents to feel the abuse that her mother put on her. Which you reveal. Yeah. Yeah. So I triggered a lot of people. I didn't. But mean- you know what I loved about it for me as a therapist, because people are, I'm always about, I can't help but see, I mean, this is the empath in me too, that it's hurt people that hurt people. Right. So yeah. no matter who they are, and no matter even Hitler, he wasn't born that way, you know? Right. right? Like, and so right. you do, there are all of these moments in the story where even though in many ways, Zayla's mother is this despicable character in the way she treats her daughter. And you can see her daughter just desperately trying to be what her mother wants and not measuring up and not feeling like she's enough. And you can, you want to be angry at the mother. There's also all of these moments where you can see and understand the mother's deep insecurities. Mm -hmm. So she's not like a one dimensional asshole. You can see that she's <laughs> that she's struggling and has her own wounds and her own insecurities. And I think toward the end of the book, it really she actually spells it out in a conversation where she's where you find out the origin story of of Zayla's parents, of the mother and the father, and how that started and how the mother has never felt like she fits in or is approved of or is enough. And so she was so self-conscious. And then she just projected all of that onto her little girl who was not the perfect little frilly pink depiction of perfection. Not that any kid is, right? but this kid wasn't. And also that her father was really a messenger of love and compassion and acceptance and boundaries. And that was flipping the paradigm on the head as well, which I think is intentionally. The father is actually my grandfather and my uncle combined. They're at, he's actually named for them. My grandfather was Frank Sylvester Champion Sr. And my uncle was Junior. And so I wanted the dad to be Frank Sylvester McKinney because he was the embodiment he of was. them. I, was, my mother raised me, you know, she adopted me. So she raised me as a single parent. So they were my father figures until they passed away. Yeah, I was reading that your mom was the first single black woman to adopt a baby. Yeah. I found out that there were 30, 29 women, one man. My mother was one of them. 
So I probably should have said one of the the first. first. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, she really wanted a child. So she was very intentional about the way she raised me. So some of the grandmother, Nana, is a combination of my aunt and my mother. Mm. And the grandfather is my uncle, my aunt's husband, who I grew up with. So like the characters are people that I know because I needed, I mean, obviously I exaggerated their behavior just a bit, but I wanted people to love not only Zayla, but they to have compassion for the characters because one of the driving forces, the other driving force for me telling the story is because I myself didn't understand why Black folks tore up their neighborhoods when there was an issue. Doing the research for the book, I fully understood because the Watts riots were the most misrepresented of the racial uprisings in this country. And the media made it seem like, you know, Black folks just went crazy because it was hot. That was like, that's, so I wanted people to see what really was happening and to understand why that came to that pivotal moment that it came to so that they could have maybe some compassion and empathy for why we uprise in our communities as an act of protest. Yeah, that's how it starts. And then it just escalates from there when you're, yeah. And she was right in the middle. She witnessed. Yeah, um, I needed that to happen too. Yeah. That was really beautiful. So yes, you definitely should read the book. It's really, really well done, well-written. And and I don't normally laugh because I'm always reading while they're watching my kids or my husband are watching a game or something else that I'm not interested in. And so they aren't used to me going, nah! you know, like <laughs> laughing out loud, but I did. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is also relevant to you and I have talked a little bit about your other work in the world. I mean, you're, you're a coach, you're an educator, obviously a writer, but a lot of your work is around diversity and inclusion. And it's really about leading with love. Yeah. And one of the things you told me, I think when, well, maybe you were saying this, I don't remember whether you told me this in a conversation or when I saw you speak, but you were saying that when the whole Black Lives Matter was starting, the not that it hasn't always been around and been important, but that movement and the protests and the conversations but especially around, well, you can tell it better than I when this started, but you ended up going down to Georgia and just knocking on doors to get into dialogue with people. What was the catalyst for that? My cross-country drive. The catalyst for that was when our president said, proud boy, stand back and stand by. Oh, you mean when, okay, when President Trump said that. Yeah. Okay. I should have said then president. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, at that time I was 54. Mm -hmm. I was last year, 53. He said that during the election. So 2020, I was 53. I spent 53 years living in this country, not afraid of being a black woman. And all of a sudden I was terrified Mm -hmm. of what that meant. And I live in Monterey. I feel like I would be relatively safe. But then there was a Trump rally that the weekend before he said that driving through Monterey, headed to Carmel. And I was like, okay. So in 2021, I found my adoptive family and my brother was getting married. And so instead of flying, I decided to drive. And I decided that along that trip, I was going to talk to people about love Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to believe that our country has become that divided. Now, 
the media will have you think we're on the brink of civil war. I don't necessarily yeah. believe that because I drove as far south as Macon, Georgia. And every time I stopped for gas or if I stopped to eat or if I saw somebody that looked interesting while I was out doing whatever touristy things were along the way, I had my little handmade sign that said, love is the bridge that connects us. I would stop people and say, I would stop them by saying, hi, I'm Glodine and I'm driving across country and talking to people. And I'd like to know if I can talk to you about love. And no one said no. I talked to over 50 people. I didn't always have my phone with me to take right. pictures. When I had my phone, I, I took a picture of the person holding the sign. But nobody, nobody. And I would say that 70% of the people I talked to were white. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were older. So like in the age range that I would believe that would be in that yeah. bucket of civil unresters, if you will. In fact, my favorite, I have two favorite stories, but my, one of my favorite stories that I don't tell often because I wish I had a picture of him, but I just want you, this is going to be so stereotypical, but I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. If you saw the movie Deliverance, uh -huh. <laughs> the motorcycle, you've got that motorcycle yeah. image. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had stopped for gas and I was looking for a car wash and I was looking at people's plates to see where they were from. Because if it said Arizona, I was going to ask them, but this guy who looked like that deliverance, deliverance guy. Yeah. I saw him get out of the car and I was like, mm -mm, I'm not talking to him. But, but that, then I was like, you can't do this with that attitude. You got to talk to everybody. So I got out of the car and I asked him if he was from Arizona because I couldn't see his plate. Yeah. And he said, he said, yeah. And I said, okay. He said, what do you need? And I said, I'm looking for a car wash. And he said, well, I don't know where one is around here, but I'll go inside when I go pay for my gas and ask. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Thank you. And when he came back out, I was pumping my gas and all my COVID masks say, let love lead us. And so he saw my plate and he said, are you coming or going? I see you're from California. And I said, I'm driving across country and I'm talking to people about love. And he went like this, what kind of love? And I said, agape love, the love that we should have for one another, the love that we were wired with when we got here and then people beat it out of us. Yeah. And he said, you mean like the love I just showed you by going to find out the name of the car wash? And I said, exactly that kind of love. And then he, you know, he got really interested how many people you talked to. And I was like, you're my third. And I wasn't even going to talk to you at first. I have to admit I was being, you know, stereotypical. And he was like, honey, I get it all the time because he had like tats around his neck. Yeah this bandana around his head. And I said, but you're like the sweetest guy. And people would have missed. I said, people probably miss out on how amazing you are because they're looking and making judgments external. about. It. Yeah. And he goes, he goes, baby, I love you. I said, I love you too. And we hugged and he went his way and I went my way. And I am glad that I have that memory. Yeah. But I wish yeah. I had a picture Listen. of him. Because I, that's one of the reasons I did this was because I needed to move out of my fear, right? And so maybe I, if somebody had said they didn't want to talk to me or they called me the N-word or whatever, that would have at least said to me, all right, things aren't the way you Something think they to be are. be afraid of, yeah. Yeah, not that I need to be necessarily afraid, but more mindful. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm all, hey, let's talk about love. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, none of that happened. And I was in the South, I mean- I drove across the Alabama border sign said, welcome to sweet home, Alabama, a thousand feet beyond the sign, tall above the trees, the Confederate flag. Oh, wow. 
And then what do I do? I pull off at the next exit because across the street, oh, not across the street, but maybe a mile or two down, I see a Cracker Barrel sign and I wanted pancakes. Yeah. So I got off the freeway. <laughs> Did you talk to anyone there? I talked to the hostess because she saw my mask yeah. when I came in. I didn't bring my paraphernalia. And she saw my mask and said, ain't it the truth? And I said, you believe that love is the bridge that connects us? And she said, absolutely. And I told her about my project. But then she immediately, like some people do this, it's called othering, where people like say things to remind you that you're different. So like people say things to me, like maybe I woke up that morning, forgot I was black. Oh, thanks for the reminder. I didn't know. So she she said something about, oh, I can't remember because I blocked that out. But it was in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And then she was asking me why I was driving because I told her I needed to sit by the the window. I asked her if she could seat me by the window because my dog was in the car. And so as we're walking, she's saying all this stuff about Biden closing down the borders and people can't fly and Trump needed to finish the wall. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to stay in this conversation because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I was a little uncomfortable because I didn't know where she was going with a lot of the things she was saying. The minute she seated me and said, where's your car? And I said, right there. And when I pointed to my car, it was almost like Tashi knew I needed her to be visible because she popped up and sat on the armrest Uh so that she could be seen. And the woman goes, oh my God, she's so adorable. And then all of a sudden the conversation shifted away from politics and race and all those things that we had been talking about. And now She's telling me about her dogs, Uh the mouse that's stuck in the wall and the dogs are trying to get the mouse and she thinks she should get a cat or whatever she said. And she's telling me about her husband and just kind of the struggle that they're having. Now we're having a real human Human connection, person to person conversation that wouldn't have been possible if I had shut her down. Because of her politics. Because of her politics. Yeah, exactly. That whole trip was like, it was almost like the universe said, all right, you want to learn and you want to grow. This is the way to do it. And what were some of the most powerful, like if you were to put them into words, most powerful lessons you took from that? That I am a beacon of light. So I have heard my entire life that I glow, if you will. Glow, Dean. (laughs) That I have a big presence, Mm -hmm. that I fill a room, but they were always said to me, or not always, but a lot of the times, I'd say 60% of the time, said to me in a way that made it seem like I was doing these things on purpose as if it was a bad thing. And so I was never comfortable receiving compliments like that because it felt like a backhanded compliment, you know, like you take up a lot of space or something, take up a lot of space. Exactly. I mean, come on, I'm six feet tall. Yeah. I do take up some space. (laughs) Yeah. But not too much space, but not too much space. And people, the way that people receive me, made me think about not only that cross-country drive, I've traveled around the world by myself to places where I was told those places don't like Black people. Mm -hmm. And those places took such good care of me. Yeah. And so that was the biggest lesson is like, I just need to be able to receive that. Even if somebody else giving me a backhanded compliment, me saying thank you diffuses whatever it is they're trying to do. So I realized that that was the biggest one for me. The second one was that I am, I am fearless. Yeah. I mean, I I'm human. I do have fear, but I am not willing to get stuck in my fear. And so I am capable of doing anything that I set my mind to. I wouldn't have ever thought that I would want to drive across the country 
by myself with a dog <laughs> who would not be able to protect me. No. She would just be able to let me know danger is coming. And then she would be like, hey, here's her purse. <laughs> the car keys are in the zipper part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I always say to my kids, that bravery is doing something even though you're afraid, right? Yeah. That it, fear yeah. doesn't, having fear doesn't mean you're not brave, right? Exactly. It's it's doing it's it anyway. Cool. Yeah. And then the third thing, and the, I should have said this was the first most important thing, is that people... People are amazing. Even hurt people that hurt people. My smile, this is, I guess, part of that lighting up thing. My smile has a way of diffusing. Mm -hmm. Disarming. Disarming. That's the word. Thank you. Disarming people. And so I think that even the people that maybe wouldn't have talked to someone else spoke to me because of the way I I greeted them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I want to, that's what I want to take out into the world. That lesson, most importantly, because we, some people have that RBF and they think that's cool. You know what that is. Resting right? bitch face. Thank you. <laughs> uh, or, you know, there's like, I know there's a lot of black guys that, that don't smile for whatever, whatever that means. Right. I remember I used to live in Chicago and the, I'd take the bus. I was teaching at Chicago state. Mm-hmm. So I would take the bus to school and I had to walk through, let's just say the guy, the bros would be out there, you know, looking tough. To me, if you're out looking tough at 10 a.m., you need to be out doing something else. Like yeah. so, but I wouldn't walk, I wouldn't walk past them like I didn't see them. Yeah. And I think they're so used to being invisible. I greeted them. And that that scowl turned into a smile. Yeah. It was like that was I loved, I love like making someone who looks like they're especially if they're trying to look right, tough. trying to look tough, and then their face breaks out into a big old exactly. poop eating grin. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I told one of the guys, I was like, man, I almost didn't speak to you because you look like you would have punched me just for speaking to you. And then look at this beautiful smile you Aww. have. He was like, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, you do have so. a beautiful light. And my guess is that a lot of that has to do with that light being reflected back to you in your upbringing, that you were in a family and raised by a mother who encouraged and celebrated your confidence in your light. But I also think you were just born that way because yeah. lots of people grow up in families like that. Although I know your mom was particularly unique from some of the stories <laughs> you've shared, but, but lots of people grow up in a really supportive environment for the most part. But I think it really is just like how and what you came in for. I don't know if I told you this. I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did, but I saw you and you were glowing and I do see there are people that I see, all different kinds of people. They're not all smiley and as glowing in action as you are, but they kind of glow. And when they do, it's like someone lights up in front of me and it feels like spirit or oneness or whatever is pointing at them to me. Like, Mm. okay, this is someone you got to meet or you got to know. And it could be anyone. And I've gotten really brazen about marching up to strangers and being like, I think we're supposed to be friends. (laughs) But in your case, what was so striking was that I saw you and I got that message that I was supposed to connect with you somehow. But what I wanted to do and what I felt compelled to do was to hug you. I really, really wanted to hug you. And then as I thought about hugging you, I wanted to cry. Not because I was sad. It was like this deep 
touchedness. And then I was like, shit, I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, this woman doesn't even know who I am. I'm at this professional organization. I'm not going to go up and hug her because I'm going to start crying. And I don't want to do it. Like I was embarrassed in anticipation. And so I didn't that whole day. And then the next day, I think I remember I came up to you. I was like, I was scared I was going to cry, but I really want to hug you. (laughs) You did. I remember that. (laughs) But I saw that light and I did not cry when I even, you know, I didn't, but I was very touched. I was, and I know you get that from people a lot because you really do. I think you came in as an ambassador, not that we all aren't at our core, but you came in very attuned to the frequency of being an ambassador for love. Yeah. Yeah. As most of you know, for the past several years, I've been on a pretty intense grief journey and it's been a path of healing. I've shared lots of that healing with you and lots of the healing resources that I found. And I am so thrilled to announce that I am doing my first ever retreat for grieving mamas. So if you or someone you love is a mama who has lost a child in any way, at any stage, at any age, I would love for you to come join me at 1440 Multiversity in the Redwoods near Santa Cruz, California for four amazing days of beautiful, uplifting community and healing. We've got David Kessler. We've got Paul Selig. We've got Catherine Woodward Thomas. We've got me. We've got body work. We've got organic food, beautiful rooms. Go to 1440.org. Check it out. It's right there on the homepage. I really hope you can join us. So I think that parents, and this is not a dig at parents, because I know you're a parent. I feel like parents see their children as miniature versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they have this desire to kind of shape them in their image and likeness. My mom saw me. Yeah. Who I am today is who she saw in infant form. She never tried to shape me into anything other than who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Now that I have met my birth family, I totally get that the I get my father's smile. But had I gone through the foster care system, people wouldn't have seen probably if I had a bad experience, this smile. I thought my mom taught me to smile. But what I like to say now is that because my mom nurtured my nature, she gave me million reasons to smile. Well, I don't know if you've, I'm, I, keep, I feel like I keep quoting him because it's just impacted me so deeply reading and interviewing him about it, but reading Gabor Mate's latest book, The Myth of Normal. Mm-hmm. And he talks extensively in there about really fundamentally that the core of most of our societal problems, whether it's homelessness, chronic disease, and mental health issues, almost all of them could be solved if we were parented differently. (laughs) And boy, did that mean his purpose was not to create parental guilt. And he said that a million times in the book, but I was like, shit, dude. (laughs) I, and I think I'm a pretty conscious parent, but it all comes down to doing exact, really you had Gabor Mate's ideal childhood because you were raised in a community, right? So you had your aunt and your grandfather and all these people. You're raised by more than one per. There are other allo parents, he calls them. 
that are supportive and that take on some of the burden so that your primary caretaker is not too overwhelmed to be emotionally present for you. And then they are not, they have dealt enough with their own shadows and their own wounds that unlike the character in your book's mother, right, who hadn't dealt with her shadows, who who was just projecting all of her insecurity or her child was an extension of her worth, which I think is a huge, I mean, I didn't take it that far as a parent, but there were lots of ways in which my fear, I was parenting against something, you know, versus whether it was that I wanted them to be someone who shared or whether it was that I wanted them to be someone who was tenacious. It was like things that I thought were going to set them up for happiness and a good life. If I saw signs that I could make up a story that that wasn't the case, I would parent against those rather than focusing on and cultivating. I did try to, right? But in my unconscious ways back then, and because I was struggling with depression and low self-worth and hadn't fully dived into my own traumas. And even though I'd read every parenting book under the sun and was a clinician who had taken 18 gajillion child development classes, and I knew exactly what to do and did those things. Right. It's really comes down to exactly what you said, your mother, that she did not do anything but lovingly celebrate and reflect back to you exactly who you were and saw you and gave you the room to fully be yourself. She did. She did. I will say to an extent, because myself was a little crazy in high school, (laughs) especially my childhood self was also I mean, I was full of I was full of life. I there are pictures of me where my mother, I'm in all white or dressed nicely. And there's pictures of me with my arm up like this because my mother was snatching me up off the ground before I got dirty. Well, you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. But she, she, man. Okay. I don't want to start crying. You can. I cry all the time. She, she held me accountable and she set boundaries. But I think the I feel like we had a pivotal moment. She told me I was adopted a little too young. I was too young. And so I was that bratty kid at that age. And I just remember she used that book. She used two books. Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. Mm -hmm. And then this big, thick psychology book. She was reading out of the psychology book. I didn't understand a word she was saying. (laughs) She was trying. (laughs) She was trying. So she got the P.D. Eastman book and she read that to me. And then she explained at the end that the baby bird was me. The mama bird that flew off was my, my birth mother. And that she was the culmination of all the things that the baby bird encountered on its journey, looking for its mother. And that her job was to take very special care of me that my birth mother gave me to her so she could take very special care of me and my jerky butt. It wasn't right after that, but it was shortly after that. She told me to clean up my room or something. And I said, you're not my mother. I don't have to do what you Uh, say. And she had this look on her face and she said, but I'm the only mother you have. And then she walked away. And then the house was like really quiet. And I felt like a jerk after I said it. But the house was so quiet and so still, I got scared. And I went looking for her and I found her crying on the sofa. And I made a promise that I would never say anything like that to her again. And never, it never came out of my mouth. I never even thought it again. Even when I was like in trouble, I felt like in junior high school, I stayed in trouble. Every weekend I was in trouble for something, mostly talking in class. 
Yeah. But I think that all children need the love, but they also need the parenting. They need the discipline yeah, of and course. The, the boundaries and the structure. And my mom didn't suffer fools. So she gave me all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she gave you the message that, you know, it's one thing you have to discipline and set boundaries and have consequences and natural consequences and all of that. But that's what helps the child feel safe. But also every step of the way, helping them see themselves through your eyes without needing to be anything different. Yeah. Personality wise, I don't mean behavior wise, but personality wise, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful gift you got there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, up to not to when she passed away in the hospital, but when she was in the hospital a lot, I would come climb in bed with her. Mm -hmm. And like, that was, that's who I am. And she never, even if she wasn't feeling good, she never told me that to, if I sat on her lap and she wasn't feeling good, she told me to get off, but she let me do those things. That's so sweet. Well, so I want to talk about, cause one of the thing you, you did a TEDx talk recently. I did. And it was really on an important and powerful topic. I want to talk about that and also the unexpected reaction you got, which I think is as or more important than the topic. But <laughs> but it was about how you had been suicidal, that Monterey, California, where you now live, you moved to in what year was it? It wasn't too 18. long ago. 2018. Yeah. September. The TEDx talk is the power of place and purpose in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we can link to it in the show notes as well as your website and everything. But you talk about how if you hadn't moved there, you probably wouldn't be alive today. You probably would have. I would have been dead by yourself. And yeah. so can you share that story of how that happened and also what some of the reactions have been that really struck you? Yeah. So after my, my mom died when I was 29. And so I felt like my world exploded and I was all alone. So I believe the depression started then. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had people, I was married at the time and I had people in my life where I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel lonely. That's you know different, I mean? <laughs> right? Not feeling um, lonely and not feeling alone can be two yeah. different things. Yeah. And I think I was, when Well, anyway, I don't tell a too long story, but the journey of grieving my mother took almost 20 years. But then I moved to Chicago. I feel like it started when I moved to Chicago, kind of just the unwinding of my confidence and my sense of self, because I, like I said, I quit my corporate job at 36 and, you know, I was, I had was moving into art. I had several art installations. I was doing photography and it's just kind of in my, in my thing, doing my thing. And I moved to Chicago thinking that I could just pick up where I left off in Oakland. Cause I was in galleries. I was in art shows. Mm-hmm. So people could have like, whatever. And I couldn't, I couldn't break through in any of those areas. Like I'd go to reading to do readings and they would have the, what I call the usual suspects, the same people yeah. at every event. And people weren't as warm and inviting, Hmm. if you will. Chicago is, I won't say cold, but people are more serious and straightforward. Yeah, they're Uh, salt to the earth. They're not too, yeah, yeah, I'm from, I lived there for 17 years, so. Okay, so you know. So my bubbly California self, people were like, get (laughs) out of here. (laughs) 
it took me a long time to like build a tribe there. Yeah. And, but I was in the worst. Oh my God. If your relationships are a reflection of how you feel about yourself, Mm -hmm. my relationships in Chicago were the epitome of that. Mm -hmm. And in 2015, I started dating this woman who was emotionally abusive. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was being gaslit. I didn't even know gaslighting was a thing. Yeah. Join the club. Most of us didn't. But a friend of mine was visiting me and heard me on the phone with her. And when I got off the phone, he said that was painful to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining that I was trying to help her understand something. And he just said, you know, you sound like the abused wife. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I moved from Chicago back to Berkeley or to Berkeley, not back to, but to Berkeley. You left her? I left. Well, I didn't leave her. I I moved and we stayed in a long distance relationship Mm -hmm. for a year. And it was not as intense because I had those miles between Mm -hmm. us and I didn't see her as often. And our phone calls weren't necessarily as, but it was still there. And I was living with friends and that wasn't a really good situation. I just felt like I had given so many people so much love and was kind. And I couldn't understand how somebody would intentionally try to hurt me, would intentionally try to change my reality of myself. And I didn't know how to, that on top of not having like my mom, because I thought I had worked through all of that grief. Yeah. But because whenever I got in a situation where she would be the first person I go to, yeah, I know that it just bubbled up. And I was like, I don't want to even be here. Why am I even here anymore? And I started thinking like, you know, I could drive into a pole. I could, I was thinking of all the ways I could do this. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to hurt anyone else, but I also didn't want to like do anything in my friend's house where they would have to find me. So I so figured really I was really thinking it through. I was, yeah, I was, I was really seriously. And I was working with a client who was in Salinas, which is about 30 miles. I mean, maybe it's not even that far. It's maybe 10 miles from here. And I used to have meetings with him. And, and instead of having to drive back to Berkeley, I could just stay down in Salinas, but this, that little, I call it my God voice said, stay in Monterey. So I got a hotel room in in Monterey and I was staying and I usually stayed the night before I would meet with him and then drive home. Mm -hmm. And that little voice said, no, stay on the back end. So I went to Monterey, I came here and I stayed for what should have been one night. And I wound up staying until Tuesday. I checked in on Friday Mm -hmm. And I left on Tuesday when I absolutely had to get back home and me and my dog just walked around and my spirit felt at peace. And it was like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I was looking at apartments that were up in the Hills. I wasn't sure if I wanted to buy or if I wanted to rent and wasn't, you know, and then where I am right now kept popping up in that, in the search. And I was like, I don't want to live there because it's too small. And then it was like, but it's on the beach, but it's too small, but it's on the beach. Just go look at it. Fine. <laughs> so like, I didn't come down. I called the property manager and asked if she would send me pictures because the ones online didn't really help me see. And I was like, okay, that little voice said, get it. And I took my dog every place I looked at and all of them, she would walk through the whole place <laughs> And then I would find her sitting at the door. <laughs> She's like, this isn't our place. This isn't our place. When I came here, we walked through the whole place, but we had gone out on the deck because the deck faces the ocean. 
we'd gone out on the deck and then come back in. And I was looking, I normally check two things when I look at a place, the bathtub, because I'm tall, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I can fit in the tub and recline. And I usually check for a dishwasher, but because it's on the beach, (laughs) see the ocean and the bathtub fit, I never even looked in the kitchen. There's no dishwasher. Um, (laughs) But I was getting ready to leave and I couldn't find Tashi. And the property manager said, she's out on the deck. And I was like, okay, Uh well, this is a good place. Yeah, she likes it here. She loves it here. And and I knew, I knew, and I got this, this is going to sound crazy, but one of the guys I dated, he always seems to send me a message when I need to get it. Mm-hmm. And he sent me a text and said, you need to call this woman. I just got a reading from her. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Cause I thought it was like, well, what's the, the character from ghost would be Goldberg's yeah. remake, whatever her name was. Adam Summer. Yeah. yeah. I saw like that. Charlatan. I saw yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so <laughs> He said, no, seriously, you need to reach out. And so I did. And she was doing my reading. And she said, who used to make sweet potato pies for you? Fried sweet potato pies. And I was like, nobody. And she said, there's a woman here and she's handing me fried sweet potato pie. And I got chills in my body. And I said, those are fried peaches. That was my, I mean, those are peaches. That's my mom. And she said, oh my God. And I started crying because I'd never had this experience before. And she said, oh my God, I felt so much love when Aww. you said that. And she said, but she didn't get the familial connection. And I told her because I was adopted, which mm-hmm. helped her understand. And so I just got to have that moment. And then when my mom was gone, she said, they told me to tell you they're glad you're still here. Aww. It was like, I never told anybody how I was feeling. No one. And that's when I knew, okay, that's why he told me to do this. And this is the message I needed to hear. And she said, you are stepping into your purpose. And they said that they're glad you're still here because you have work to do. And you were, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to do on the other side. And so I hadn't intended on talking about that. I mean, I didn't tell that whole story on my TEDx, but I was telling how my life, like the connection of the dots, if you will, mm-hmm. leading to my life, if I had actually taken my life and my friends and family had to connect those dots, would they have been able to make sense of why I would take such a drastic measure? But at the end of that, the end of my talk, I came to the conclusion that I had to go through all of that so that I could step into my purpose and that Monterey called to me so that I could do this work. And so it comes out, I didn't tell anybody what the subject was about. And people that have known me for a long time and some family members watched it and they all said it was great. And I was all in my head about it because I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare for it. And so I said things that I hadn't intended to say. I mean, I intended to say that Monterey saved my life, but it was clear that I was suicidal. Like I said, I didn't say suicidal, but I mentioned that. you wanted to end it. You were looking for a way to end it. Yeah. And no one, well, I take that back. One person, the client that I came down here to work with, he and I are really good friends. And when he watched it, he said, I had no idea you were considering suicide the whole time you, I knew you. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, if you ever feel like that again, you better call me. And I said, I will, but I'm on the other side of it, but no one else mentioned it. It was like, let's not even. Yeah. We won't even acknowledge it. it Cause we it won't might, even. Yeah. Exactly. And there's so many reasons why people do that. Right. Like one is that they're uncomfortable with it. That's the main reason. 
Two is if they don't say it, which is related to number one. If they don't say it, then it's not really real. And three, I think a lot of people are afraid. I've noticed this with having lost my son, which, you know, totally different, but very touchy, painful, whatever, is that people don't feel like I'm not going to say anything because I don't know what to say. And so if I don't know what to say, God forbid, I make it worse somehow. So I'm just going to not say anything like a little ostrich and, you know, (laughs) I don't care, you know, like the ostrich does like I'm hiding, or like my kids would do, you know, when they, or when you put the, the tissue, the napkin over their face and they think you can't see them, you know, it's like that. But I think that's so powerful about your story, the way in which the silence was deafening. Yeah. But also the faces, when you think about the faces of suicide, like most people don't look or seem or talk or tell or act in ways on the outside. I hear that all the time when one of these tragedies strike that like I had no idea that this person was suffering. But you know what there is? And this is why I hadn't intended this wasn't even on my agenda to think about until someone said to me that I should share this with people because nobody would think that I would, especially with my message of love, what she was, what, but I think I get it because the most loving thing you can do for someone is to listen. So I would, I had tried to talk to people about how I was feeling, but they always redirected me to to look at all the good I had in my Mm -hmm. life or to think about this or to think about that. And I remember I had a moment maybe six months later where I felt it was during the pandemic. I felt this crushing weight on me. Like I didn't still feel suicidal, but I just felt so lonely and alone. Like the combination, I mean, I was, I was alone, but then the loneliness of it. And I, I didn't know how to cope. And I called my cousin hysterically crying because I had made a commitment. Once I moved through like the initial planning of like doing this, I'm not going to do it. But if I ever get like this, I need to, I agree that I'm going to reach out. So I called my cousin because I knew she would just listen. Yeah. And she let me cry. And I was like, I need you to come be with me. (laughs) Good. You want me to come right now? Yes, I can't take it. And whatever I said, and I'm, I'm bawling and she's, and I knew it was COVID. So I didn't want to put her on a plane, but she just let me cry. And then she said, when I finished and I calmed down, she said, do you still need me to come? And I said, no, I think I'm okay, but I need you to be on standby Good. just in case. And that two reasons I'm sharing that is because the first thing in that was that I made a commitment to reach out mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to tell her how I was feeling. I was in tears. Like I literally was bawling Yeah. and she didn't try to make me make sense of it. So that's the other thing. Like people, if I could give anyone advice on this, I would say to them, If someone reaches out, if they have the courage to reach out to you, you have to show them love just by listening. Don't ask questions because sometimes those questions make us not want to want to answer you. The more questions you throw at us, because I've had that happen before, more questions that you someone threw at me made me feel like they didn't believe what I was saying. Yeah. And I I don't want to have to prove to you that I feel suicidal. You want me to just do it? So then you believe me or maybe you just shut up and let me talk. (laughs) And so I think that the the most loving thing that we can do when someone has the courage to reach out is to just listen. Yeah, that's so important. And also saying like, 
like your cousin did, what can I do to support? Like you listen, you let them process, you hold that space. You don't try to convince them otherwise or talk them out of their feelings, but then offering, what can I do to support you? Do you want me to come? Like, are, you know, because I do think, and then the other thing, because this has happened several times with my eldest son who has gone through periods of deep depression. And I do that for him. But the other thing I do, and it's a tricky thing because you don't want to interrupt the flow and ask too many questions. But on the few occasions, and this hasn't happened in many years, but on the few occasions where I would say to him at some point in the conversation, so when you're feeling this way, like, do you, have you thought about, you know, are you really to the point where you're thinking about plans? Like if someone has a plan like you did, then I'm really scared. Then I'm not going to be like, okay, you'll feel better. Call me if you need me. I'm going to be like, okay, maybe I should come. Do we have a plan? Please call me. Are you going to call me if you really? So I just inserting that into your advice because you don't want to just listen and then, and then think that person's going to be fine. That's true. That's true. That's true. I was going to say the the ending question could be, you know, let me know how I can help or asking that question. Have you made a plan? Yeah. I don't even know that I would have been able to say I'd made a plan because in my mind I hadn't thought about yeah. that this was the plan. Yeah. But yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back in retrospect, right? You know, life is uh life, I won't say life is hard. I will say that life is intended to help us learn and grow. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have challenges that we are faced with to help us learn a lesson. And I think that me being in that space of suicide was realizing that I needed to set boundaries with people. The only reason I had been pushed to that extreme was because the disappointment and hurt that I felt was from people who took full advantage of the love, the openness, the willingness that I was to give of myself. And being able to say to someone, no, Or being able to say, I didn't like that. Yeah. Or I'm not going to put up with that. Don't treat me that way. Or don't treat me that way. Exactly. I needed to have that experience so I can get here. And the other thing was, I had been a serial monogamist, right? There was from the time I started dating at 17 until 50, I was 50 when we broke up. Yeah. So until 50. I had been in a relationship. I can't remember a time when I wasn't in a relationship of some kind. Right. So these last, oh my God, five years, <laughs> these last five years have been about me Yes. and on this self-love journey and, and really getting clear about who Glodine is and why, not why other people should love me, but why I should love me. And I love me some Glodine now. Yes. Well, we all love us some Glodine. And I think that's where it always starts. I mean, I talk about that on this show all the time that the love, we are a frequency match for people who are vibrating at the same in harmony with our vibration. So the more that we authentically, I don't mean like you're terrific, you right. know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh, darn it. You know, like Stuart Smalley on Saturday yeah. Night, is that his name, yeah. that character from Saturday Night Live, but like authentically connecting to your true heart and recognizing your worthiness of love and doing your healing work that when you do that, 
And especially when you've been through the desert, right? Or the dark night of the soul, like you have, like I have, like so many of us have, and you've come out the other side and you take that time to integrate it, to heal. Then when you are ready, you are a frequency match for such a higher caliber. Not only are you better capable of setting the boundaries you need to set and how you want to be treated and everything and recognize the red flags or whatever else on a practical level, on an energetic level, you are attracted to and attracting in someone who's also at that level. Like we're always going to attract in someone who's reflects our level of emotional health and self-worth. So the next one you get into is going to be real juicy and wonderful. Exactly. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. I'm almost ready. I can't say I'm fully ready because I'm I still have a little bit more work to do. My last piece of this was the, I went from drinking my emotions to eating my emotions, <laughs> but I needed to do that too, right? Yeah. yeah. So now I intentionally said I was going to do everything I normally do in 2023. At the beginning of the year, I use a, I usually do a 20 day full body cleanse, mm-hmm. not, not for, not for any other reason than to just kind of reset my body. But I have been on a, my, my uh, birth father sent me on a little bit of an emotional ride. And I realize now that for seven months of 2022 of this year, I was emotionally eating because I was hurt. And I realized in July that it wasn't that I was hurt because of his behavior. I was hurt because the main reason I didn't want to meet my birth family was because I didn't want to get rejected. Mm-hmm. And I had to acknowledge that what he did made me feel rejected. And then once I said it, I was like, well, damn, we have fear of rejection. It's not going to kill you, Mm -mm. but you got to be willing to say that is the thing that's happening. So I decided that, that, yeah, now that I'm here, I'm like, okay, I'm doing my cleanse in December and I'm going to hit the ground running in January. So I've got so much to share with the world and I'm going to all better place. <laughs> I love it. And I'm so, so just like your spirit guide said, I personally am so grateful that you're still here and Thank that you. you're just here for all of us. And I encourage people to read the book, Sam and Croquettes, check out your website. We'll have all the information on the show notes with links and I just thank you. Thank you for being here and for, for being having you me. and for being your glowing, glow dean self. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you, Dr. Laura. 